all persons of whatever degree residing at the college and all undergraduates, whether dwelling in the college or in the town, shall constantly and seasonably attend the worship of God in the chapel morning and evening. And if any undergraduate come to prayers after the exercises are begun, he shall be fined two cents. And if he shall be absent from prayers without sufficient reason, he shall be fined three cents for every such neglect. And if any undergraduate shall be remarkable for frequent tardiness or absence from the religious exercises of the chapel, the president, after particular inquiry into the reasons of this neglect, judging them insufficient, shall give him a private admonition. If he persist in his neglect, he shall be admonished by the president, professors, and tutors. And if he do not reform, he shall be degraded, suspended, or rusticated according to the continuance of the offense. Harvard University Rules, 1813. Two hundred years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge and a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, an author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at seconddecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two Ds in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 14, Down and Out at Harvard. Tonight's episode is kind of an unusual one. It's about laundry and dirty clothes, pocket money, clinical depression, a couple of epic parties, and self-discovery. But it's also about something else, privilege. That should not come as a surprise to you in a podcast episode with the word Harvard in the title. Harvard University, America's oldest and most prestigious institute of higher learning, is built on privilege. In a way, it's a privileged factory. Part of its purpose is to educate well-to-do people to be successful in life, to reproduce and to pass on their privilege to a new generation. I don't mean the word privilege to be derogatory, but let's face facts. Since the founding of Harvard College in 1636, Harvard has educated a disproportionate number of influencers and power brokers, not just in America, but in many other countries. Harvard has educated eight presidents of the United States, from John Adams to Barack Obama. The current Prime Minister of Singapore is a Harvard man. The older brother of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, killed in 1976 in the famous raid on Entebbe, Harvard man. Conan O'Brien, Harvard man. Ursula K. Le Guin, Harvard educated. I could go on all day. But Harvard is about more than just privilege. It is, at its heart, a college. 
The young men who went to Harvard in the second decade, and they were all men at that time, had many things in common with today's college students. They went to classes, they went to parties, they had love affairs, they had conflicts with their parents, their professors, and each other. Tonight's story is about privilege, but it's also a human story, and I think a remarkably poignant one, what it was like to go to college 200 years ago. Tonight's story is based on the personal recollections of two young people who were there, who experienced it for themselves. So really there are two Harvards that are the backdrop of tonight's episode. One of them's the Privilege Factory, a world of old brick buildings, ivy-covered walls, white-haired New England patricians, who even in 1810 were part of the oldest and most extensive old boys network in America. The other Harvard is a college, and a college experience for real young people in the real world. This is the day-to-day Harvard, what classes students went to, what they ate, what they thought and felt about what was going on in this privileged environment that they didn't always understand. Just for some context, we're going to have to talk a little bit about the first Harvard, but most of tonight's story is going to be about the second, what it was really like to go to college in the 18-teens. Fortunately, we have an interesting, a really interesting on-the-ground account of what it was like to be a student at Harvard during the second decade. In fact, we have two. Two young men, teenagers really, left behind in their letters and diaries a very rich record of their lives at Harvard College, incidentally at exactly the same time. Neither of their accounts mention each other, but they were both part of the same class, the class of 1817. Their names were Stephen Salisbury and Aaron White. Both of them are really interesting people. Through their eyes, you'll get to see what college, specifically Harvard College, was like 200 years ago, and how these kids, and they were just kids, how they dealt with it, or failed to. Join me now for their stories, two individual stories of life in the second decade, stories that I think both deserve the same title, Down and Out at Harvard. On July 17, 1813, Stephen Salisbury, writing from Leicester, Massachusetts, wrote to his mother in Worcester. He was then in the midst of his entrance examinations to Harvard College in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Quote, Dear Mother, will you please send me my Greek Majora, not my Nora, and my Atlas and the second volume of Webster's Mathematics, which I left in the book closet, I think. Last Monday, which was the second day I wore them, I burst my silk pantaloons on each side of the seat, in running, and therefore I've sent them home. Give my duty to my father and love to my friends. Your dutiful son, S. Salisbury, Jr. At the time he wrote this letter, Stephen Salisbury was all of 15 years old. Yes, 15, the equivalent today of a high school sophomore. He was born in 1798. This is the first thing you have to understand about college in the second decade. The students were young. They were kids. Some members of the Harvard freshman class were as young as 13. The idea of college as higher education or secondary education, where most people went after graduating high school, that's a 20th century invention for the most part. Harvard in 1813 basically was high school, and that's what we're talking about here. Teenagers. In July 1813, Stephen had just left home for the first time. And notice what this letter is about. He forgot a bunch of his books, and he ripped the butt out of his pants. 
You can imagine his mom rolling her eyes when she read this. Oh, Stephen, those were brand new pants. The Salisbury family was very prominent in Worcester, Massachusetts. It's not clear to me how Stephen's father earned his living, but clearly they did own land and property and were prominent citizens of the town. Prior to going to Harvard, Stephen attended Leicester Academy, which is now a high school. At the time, it was a pretty swank public school, though not quite the classic prep school like you see in Catcher in the Rye or Dead Poets Society. The books he asked for are interesting. Here are the entrance requirements to Harvard in 1813. Quote, Terms of admission to the freshman or lowest class. Every person admitted must be thoroughly acquainted with the grammar of the Latin and Greek languages and with the following books. Dalzell's Collectiana Gracia Minora, the Greek Testament, Virgil, Cicero's Select Orations, and with the following rules of arithmetic, notation, simple and compound addition, subtraction, multiplication and division, reduction, and the single rule of three. He must be able to translate English into Latin correctly. End quote. Got all that? Could you do all that when you were 15? I consider myself a pretty smart guy, but expecting me to be able to translate Greek and Latin at age 15 is a pretty tall order. And I wouldn't know Cicero's select orations if it ran up and took a crap on my shoe. I could quote you Van Halen lyrics, but not Cicero. Anyway, this gives you a sense of what education among privileged New Englanders was like in 1813. Stephen Salisbury evidently could do all that, and his mom must have sent him his books because he did get into Harvard. By fall 1813, he was living in a boarding house off campus owned by one Captain Luther Dana. His roommate was a kid named George Bancroft, who was 13. Remember that name, it'll come up again. Stephen and George's room was less than satisfactory. It had no curtains. In October, Stephen wrote to his mother asking her to make him, or have made for him, a set of curtains. He explained that his room was on the ground floor, and anybody who went by in the street could see everything just by looking through the windows. 13- and 15-year-old boys are pretty self-conscious about themselves. Mom didn't send the curtains. In his next letter, Stephen says, I was much disappointed in not receiving my curtains, for I cannot do without them. For when we are dressing, nothing hinders people who are going by from looking in on us. Not only that, but saucy young fellows going by first look in to see whether there are those within strong enough to oppose them. If they are not, they strike on the window to frighten us and almost push it in. Now if we had the curtains, they would not know how large we were, and then we could go to the window and drive them off. So there were bullies at Harvard in 1813. I mean real bullies, like beat you up on the quad after class type bullies. I bet you didn't know that. I didn't before I read Stephen's account. So what was Harvard like at this time? Before we return to the saga of Stephen Salisbury and his curtainless dorm room, it's worth zooming out a bit and at least understanding some of the ivy-covered wall stuff, the other Harvard, just to ground us where we are. What we now know as Harvard University, called Harvard College in the 18-teens, was founded in 1636. It may not seem like it at first, but the founding of Harvard is pretty much tied to that saga of pilgrims and Puritans that we Americans haul out of mothballs every Thanksgiving to explain why we chow down on turkey and argue about politics every November. 1636 was only 16 years after the Mayflower landed at Plymouth. 
Harvard was envisioned mostly as a religious institution, a place to train clergymen in the brand new New England colony. In 1638, the college, then known just as New College, had the only printing press in America. The early history of Harvard, which fortunately doesn't concern us much, is a long saga of old white men arguing about religion and money and charters and stuff like that. Calvinists versus Unitarians, that sort of thing. If you're interested, there's plenty of books about this. Let's just go ahead and skip over all of that to arrive in 1810, the beginning of the second decade. The president of Harvard College in 1810, appointed in that year upon the death of the previous president, was John Thornton Kirkland. A Unitarian Reverend, because of course. A Federalist, because, hey, this is New England. Kirkland was a religious liberal, and he was also pretty progressive in seeking a diverse student body. Of course, diverse in terms of what was acceptable at Harvard College in 1810 is a pretty far cry from what we think of as diversity today. You probably wouldn't be surprised to learn that the first African-American student to graduate from Harvard didn't get handed his diploma until 1870, long after our period ends and women don't even mention it. But Kirkland did try to cultivate students from outside the fairly closed universe of white, rich, Protestant New Englanders, your classic Boston Brahmin. By 1816, six years into his term, a full 18% of entering students were from outside New England. There were even a few Catholics, and at least one Jewish student. And not all the students were from rich families. Jared Sparks, who was a sophomore when Stephen Salisbury was a freshman, came from an obscure family in the wilds of Connecticut, and in fact he'd worked as a carpenter's apprentice. Sparks would eventually become president of Harvard in 1849. These students mostly got in through the machinations of local clergy, and some had scholarships. One thing was true of Harvard in the second decade that is still true today. It was very expensive, and it wasn't just tuition. For fees, room, board, books, mail, and various other expenses, students and their families could expect to pay about $300 a year to attend Harvard. That was a lot of money in 1813, but it's still only about the equivalent of $4,000 in today's money. Today, Harvard tells its students and their parents that without financial aid, they should expect to pay over $63,000 a year to go. Stephen Salisbury did have money problems, as we'll see, but before we get to that, just a few other snapshots of what Harvard was like at that time. There were only six buildings at Harvard in the early to middle part of the second decade. Harvard Hall was the site of the library with about 15,000 books. There was the chapel, Holden Chapel. The quote at the beginning of this episode told you that students were required to attend and find if they didn't. There were four dormitories, Massachusetts, Hollis, Stoughton, and Holworthy. At the time Stephen got there, Holworthy was brand new. All of these buildings still exist, and believe it or not, they're all still used as dormitories, at least partially, though Massachusetts Hall today contains the office of the Harvard University president. University Hall was finished when Stephen was a sophomore in 1814. There were four dining halls and two kitchens, six lecture rooms, and the chapel. At this time, there were 13 professors, four tutors, an instructor in rhetoric and oratory, and a French instructor. One of the tutors was Edward Everett, himself a Harvard graduate, later president of Harvard and secretary of state. Everett is perhaps best known for being the keynote speaker at the dedication of the military cemetery at Gettysburg in November 1863. He spoke for two hours and then was totally upstaged by Abraham Lincoln, who spoke for two minutes. 
the famous Gettysburg Address. Students' days were pretty packed. A Harvard undergraduate's day would have started at 6 a.m. with, what else, chapel. Lessons, called recitations mainly from books, went on every other hour all day long from after that 6 a.m. chapel until 4 o'clock in the afternoon. This was just to make sure students didn't get tempted to do something, anything, other than their studies. Remember, these are boys mostly in their middle to late teens, so there's plenty of trouble they can get into. On Saturdays, freshmen were permitted to leave campus after chapel and maybe one or two recitations. To leave, you had to sign the president's freshman's book and indicate where you were going. Most students pretended they were going to visit relatives. The main destination was Boston, which was across a toll bridge. There was also a stagecoach, a form of primitive mass transit that ran between Harvard Square and central Boston, twice or three times a day. Freshmen had to be back at 8 p.m. and sign in. Then they had to go to their rooms and study. There were no organized sports in the 18-teens, but sometimes students played football on the yard. In fact, Stephen Salisbury bought a football during his freshman year. It cost six cents. We know a lot about what Stephen bought and spent during his time at Harvard, because evidently his parents demanded that he send them a periodic accounting. They obviously did not trust him with money. Here's one of his notes, which he sent to his parents on November 28, 1813, detailing his expenses since September 30. During this time, he spent a total of $14.12, the equivalent of $177 in today's money. He spent 25 cents on crepe paper, for what reason we have no idea, a biscuit, 2 cents, apples, 25 cents, gingerbread, he liked gingerbread because there's a lot of entries for it, 4 cents a pop. He also liked cake and chestnuts, and something called whorehound candy, no idea what that is. He spent 3 cents for measuring wood, presumably a ruler. He lent a dollar and 2 cents to his roommate, George Bancroft. He paid a coach fare to Framingham, a dollar fifty. Breakfast, 50 cents. Gee, that must have been quite a spread. And he spent 18 cents to get his hair cut. His mom nagged him about this. Here's what she wrote. I hope you had your hair cut some one of these warm, fine days we have had, and that you don't fail to comb and brush your hair every day. If it has not yet been cut, take some fine day and do not have it cut very short. Do not neglect your teeth. If you do, they will be the worse for what has been done to them. End quote. Evidently, Stephen had bad teeth. Everybody had bad teeth in 1813. He complains about them from time to time, has frequent toothaches, but at one point he says he's doing better because they only hurt when it's cold. Well, that's something, I guess. What about the curtains? He never got them. Here's what his mom wrote on November 3, 1813. You are still, I find, very desirous of having curtains to your windows, and did I know that you would be accommodated by them as you expect, I would indulge you. But I can hardly suppose it. Those who would intrude on you in improper seasons, and otherwise behave improperly, would still do so, though you had curtains. Could they not look through or over them? Jeez, Mom, really? Stephen and George are out there giving a free show to everyone who walks by on the street. They're getting harassed by bullies, and you can't spring for some damn curtains? What is wrong with this woman? Stephen was utterly dependent on his parents for pocket money. He was also dependent on his mother for another very important thing, and one you'll sympathize with if you ever went away to college. Laundry. In fact, laundry is an obsession among Harvard students. 
The subject recurs not just in Stephen's letters, but in Aaron White's diaries. We're going to get to Aaron White in the second half of the episode. If you think about it, laundry would be a major problem on an all-male college campus in the early 19th century, an era before washing machines when everything was done by hand, and in rich people's family done by the hired help, washerwomen. For some reason I don't understand, but can guess, probably expense, Harvard students either couldn't or generally didn't get their laundry done locally. Stephen had to send his clothes home to Worcester to get them washed. Aaron White sent his clothes home, too. Stephen sent his clothes home, possibly via stagecoach or some other form of regular transit, in something called a sulky bag. In one letter, his mother gives him precise instructions. Quote, Whenever you send up your clothes or anything else, you will first put them in the inside bag, two G's on bag, and tie that bag up and put them into the sulky bag, remembering to tie up the strings and buckle every strap that belongs to the sulky bag, that nothing may be lost out on the wagon. End quote. Yeah, Stephen, remember all those straps. Roads were rough in the 18-teens, and you don't want your dirty underwear bouncing out all over the roads between Cambridge and Worcester. I'm being facetious here. Honestly, Stephen's mother is starting to sound insufferable. He can't even tie up his laundry bag right by her. When she did send him clothes, she sent him the wrong clothes. She seems to have loved to send him pantaloons and stockings, more than he could use. She usually sent the wrong kind for the wrong season. Ultimately, Stephen protests, saying, Please don't send me any more pantaloons. I can't wear all the ones I've got. Mom writes back, angrily upbraiding him for his ingratitude. Unfortunately, as he got older, the constant battles over clothes didn't change. In June 1817, when Stephen was about to graduate, age 19, I found this in one of his mother's letters. Have your sheets changed and send home all your cast clothes. They say there were two odd socks in the wash. Be careful to wear mates, my son. Cue the facepalm. Aaron White was an interesting kid. If you read his diaries, and you probably won't because they're not published, being held instead in the archives of the Massachusetts Historical Society, if you read his diaries, you catch on instantly how introspective, erudite, and religious he was, even as a teenager. His background in early life is similar to Stephen Salisbury's. He was from a relatively well-to-do family from Boylston, Massachusetts. Exactly when he was born is disputed, particularly among genealogical resources on the web. Some say 1793, some say 1798. Actually, it was 1797. Aaron himself told me that in his diary, which I read. What I read was not a reprint or a transcription, by the way. I read the actual original pages that he wrote on 200 years ago when he went to Harvard during the second decade. He had beautiful handwriting. Anyway, Aaron White was from a pretty good family. His grandmother's brother was none other than Samuel Adams, the famous Boston Revolutionary, which meant Aaron White was related to two presidents of the United States, the two John Adamses. His father was a clerk, farmer, property owner, and shopkeeper in Boylston. He naturally desired to pass on his privilege to his son, so he sent him to the finest schools in Massachusetts, including Leicester Academy. Although they never mention each other in their writings, I'm certain that Aaron White and Stephen Salisbury knew one another, probably well. 
They were classmates at Leicester Academy before 1813, and then they attended Harvard at the same time, from 1813 to 1817. They had to know each other. Whether they liked each other, who knows. I'm rather taken by the idea that perhaps they didn't like each other, avoided each other, because that makes it somewhat more ironic that they end up bound together as the subject of a podcast about their school days, 200 years after the fact. Although Aaron apparently attended Harvard beginning in 1813, his diary picks up in 1815, when he was a sophomore or junior. He was very observant. In his diary, he almost always recorded the weather, which is how he came to my attention. I found his diary while doing research on the weather and climate history of the second decade. On August 16, 1815, Aaron White wrote this in his diary, quote, Rainy. After a long drought, how pleasant it is to hear the dropping of water from the eaves in the stillings of the evening. With what inward calmings and serenity does it affect the mind. Vain are all the works of man in comparison with the goodness and kindness of God towards the sinful, the lost children of men. End quote. Well, that was the kind of kid Aaron White was at 17. Here's what he wrote on the occasion of his 18th birthday on September 7, 1815. This day I completed my 17th year. Perhaps this may be the last year of my life. Countless is the number of those who have died before, that they arrive to half the number of years which heaven in mercy has granted me. Prepare me, O Lord, for whatever trials await me. There were trials of sorts going on at Harvard during these times. A few months before Aaron's 18th birthday, in July 1815, some sort of disturbance, or rebellion, occurred among the Harvard student body. Its exact nature is a bit unclear from the sources I read. It had something to do with the governing board of the college. At commencement, which appears to have taken place in July, the Harvard administration issued some kind of censure or reprimand to the student body. Exactly why, I don't know, but it appears that a few students did something the administration didn't like. Yet they blamed the wrong people, expelling, or rusticating as the word was, at least three. In protest, the vast majority of students staged a demonstration by refusing to go to their recitations the next day, essentially refusing to go to class. Here's how Stephen Salisbury described it. Quote, The government of the college were very impolitic in the manner they took notice of it. For if they had waited until the next day and then suspended a few or fined all of us, the students would have been quiet. But there are some of the government who think there is no way of restoring order but by the most severe measures. And instead of taking those whose general character was bad, they pitched those whose character for morals was good, and as for scholarship they were among the best of their classes. Those proceedings which are considered, by those who are inclined to misrepresent, as insults to the government, were intended merely as sympathy of the whole body of the students, who were the unfortunate victims of the punishment which should justly have fallen upon us all. End quote. Of course, Stephen's mother sided with the administration. She wrote to him in much sorrow and anxiety in her words. Why, she wrote, did you not obey the summons to recitation? Were you not conscious that you ought to do so? Most happy should I have been to know that you had distinguished yourself by obedience to government, which has without a doubt a right to institute new rules and regulations, whenever they judge it proper to do so. This you must acknowledge. Stephen wrote back with two excuses. First, he said he was bathing at the time the summons to recitations came. Yeah, right. 
Second, basically he told mom that it was more complicated than she'd heard, and it was too complicated to explain in a letter, and he'd tell her all about it the next time he came home. My guess is, when he got home, she yelled at him. Although he doesn't mention it, at least it's not in my notes, I can only assume that Aaron White took part in this demonstration, or was somehow affected by it. My guess is that it depressed him. I say that because it seems just about everything seems to have depressed him. He seems to have been depressed quite often. Aaron often wrote this, or something to the effect of this, troubled with melancholy reflections. He also wrote of strange times, but he could be referring to the weather as well, the curious weather anomalies of 1816, the year without summer. On April 1st, 1816, he wrote, Cloudy. Election of the governor takes place today. Some thunder in the afternoon. May heaven in mercy protect me and others amidst the terrors of thunder. In June 1816, on three separate occasions, Aaron makes references to being dejected or unworthy. He keeps returning to this theme. To be sure, this is not necessarily psychological. Clearly he was very religious, and the staunch Puritanism of the early 19th century Boston society made a big thing of how people were unworthy in the eyes of God and how terrible their lives were. There's something more to Aaron's words, though. Yes, there are plenty of religious references, but there's a kind of worldly sadness about the way he writes about things, about his life and such. I think it's quite possible he suffered from depression. He doesn't seem to have liked school very much. I get a sense, comparing his writings to Stephen's, that Stephen got a lot out of Harvard and that he enjoyed the intellectual challenge. What I get from Aaron's diary is that it was just a lot of drudgery. Just like Stephen, Aaron dealt with what were obviously the two most crucial factors that impacted college life at this time, money and laundry. He wrote on July 19, 1816, that money was scarce. Unlike Stephen, we don't have Aaron's correspondence with his parents, but it's probably fair to suggest that he asked them for money pretty frequently. About a month earlier, on June 13, 1816, he noted in his diary that he sent his clothes home to be washed. Obviously, this was the common arrangement among Harvard College students. One wonders, did Aaron White also have a sulky bag, bag with two Gs? I also wonder, and I don't know the answer to this, what about the students whose families weren't local? There were, in 1816, a few students from the South, specifically South Carolina. They had to get their laundry done somewhere. Maybe they did it themselves, though I doubt it. I can't imagine a young South Carolina gentleman in 1816 elbows deep in lye soap with a washboard out behind his dorm. There must have been some kind of takeout laundry service in Cambridge, but there's no mention of it in the sources I saw. Anyway, enough about dirty clothes. In the same entry, June 13, 1816, Aaron also notes, somewhat touched by the hypochondria. Now this word is very interesting. At first I assumed it meant what it generally means today. A hypochondriac is a person who constantly worries that they have some terrible disease. A mole on your arm becomes slightly inflamed, and suddenly you're convinced you're dying of skin cancer. That's a hypochondriac. But that's not what the word hypochondria meant at the time of the second decade. What did it mean then? Depression. What people sometimes called, especially in the 19th century, melancholia. Aaron's mention of hypochondria comes in that very same stretch between June 3rd and June 14th, 1816, in which he mentioned being dejected or unworthy no less than three times. And now, on June 13th, he says directly he suffers from hypochondria. Aaron White was depressed, 
and from this evidence it seems clear that he was suffering a depressive episode in the first half of June 1816. Why does this matter? Well, the timing of it is interesting when you consider it in conjunction with his observations of the weather. Nearly every diary entry contains some mention of the weather. Fair, cold, and windy. Fair, the season remarkably backward. Remember the first quote I read you from him? It involved rain, the sound of rain at night. This is a person who is very in tune with his environment, with the weather, the climate. In early June 1816, there was a snowstorm in New England. Yes, you heard me right, snow, which fell across the U.S. Northeast and parts of Canada on June 6th and 7th, 1816. These are part of the year without summer weather anomalies, which I'm going to do an episode specifically on. It was caused by volcanic eruptions, principally Tambora, which we talked about in episode 7. On June 6, 1816, the day the snow began in some parts of New England, Aaron noted, Cold weather. Temperature stood yesterday at 82. Today at 50. He would later call the summer of 1816 a most remarkable season and strange times. He was already in a funk that began no later than June 3rd. On June 6th, it's terribly cold, starts snowing in some places. I believe it did snow in Cambridge. I have another source that mentions snow in Boston on June 7th or 8th. Clearly, this was a strange and scary time, and probably a gloomy one. He's low on cash, he's low on clean clothes, something's obviously happening on campus. This is a month before the rebellion that Stephen described. Probably not good times for poor Aaron White. There is no other passage in his diary, no other stretch of time, that jumped out at me quite as gloomy as June 1816. He was about a year from graduation. There was some change in Aaron's status at school, probably moving up to his final year, a senior, which happened in September 1816. I'm not clear where he was living before this, but on September 28th, he writes this, quote, Fair and very cold, a very severe frost last night, corn much injured. I started this morning from Boylston with my brother Avery, and after an uncomfortable day's ride, arrived at Cambridge. Took possession of my new room, the same my grandfather occupied 40 years ago, end quote. So that's interesting. Aaron moved to his new lodgings in his last year at Harvard and occupied the exact same room that his grandfather lived in at the time of the American Revolution. I wish he'd mentioned which building it was in. Aaron does seem to have visited home more often than Stephen did. That's not surprising, considering Aaron's family lived in Boylston, which is much closer to Cambridge than Worcester. The family also visited Boston proper pretty often. February 14, 1817, was remembered by many New Englanders as the coldest day of their lives, even colder than the celebrated Cold Friday of 1810, which I keep meaning to do an episode on. Anyway, on that day, Aaron wrote this, Fair and extremely cold. Went to Boston with my father and Aunt White, where I took the stage and came to Cambridge in the afternoon. There built in my room a good fire and used my best endeavors to keep warm. At this time, winter 1817, both Aaron and Stephen were nearing the end of their time at Harvard. Poor Stephen was still struggling with money and arguing with his parents about it. On March 14, 1817, he wrote, this time to his father, Perhaps I did not express myself in a proper manner. At any rate, you mistook what I said in one of my last letters with respect to my want of money. I did not mean to trespass on your goodness for any more. 
Yet, later in the same letter, that's exactly what he does. He asks his dad for more money. This time, he says he has to buy a black silk gown, which the Harvard administration has suddenly decreed the students have to wear. At the end of the letter, he says, I thank you for your liberality and hope that I may regulate my expenditures by your will. It sounds a little sarcastic to me. Neither Aaron nor Stephen seem to make friends very easily. In fact, in Stephen's letters, there's a long exchange about how he can't find a chum, that's the word he uses, and running true to form, his mother tells him that he'd better be careful who he chooses for a chum to make sure, you know, he's the right sort. As far as I can tell, Aaron doesn't mention friends at all. He seems to have been very withdrawn, a melancholy kid who kept to himself. Too bad he and Stephen weren't friends. Yet, despite all the gloom, the hypochondria, Aaron can occasionally pick fun at himself. One of my favorite passages from his diary, which made me chuckle out loud in the reading room of the Massachusetts Historical Society when I read it, is this one. Every man or boy that meets me in the streets has some arch observation to make about my long legs. I am sure I can find no fault in them. The most interesting thing from Aaron's diary, the thing I say for the end, is the party that he finally went to. In his senior year, a few months from graduation, Aaron White finally got to go out and have some fun. Here's what he writes. March 27, 1817. The senior class had a supper at Mr. Porter's on account of the resignation of Mr. Kendall, our particular tutor. At 8 o'clock, we went in procession from Holworthy to Porter's Hall and sat down to a table loaded with luxuries. After supper, the dishes being removed, the tables were squared and wine apples and cigars were brought on, songs were sung, and toasts given in abundance. There being finished, Mr. Kendall, who joined with us, made his speech and retired. Soon after, a considerable part of the class, myself among the number, retired also, but some stayed much later. The next day, March 28, 1817. Laid abed till eight and lost my breakfast. I feel no better for last night's meeting. This is the first convivial meeting that I have ever attended. I had fancied, from words illegible, that some sensual pleasure at least was to be found, and I trembled for myself, lest the temptation with which I should be surrounded might lead me from the paths of rectitude. End quote. What does this mean? Well, reading between the lines, I think Aaron went to this party and got drunk for the first time in his life. The reference to sensual pleasure and temptation is interesting. The only reason I think he didn't get more than just drunk was the fact that there were probably no women at this party. Harvard, in 1817, was strictly stag. Speaking of parties, Stephen Salisbury finally got to have one, too. On August 27, 1817, Commencement Day, he and his family threw a grand party in a huge tent constructed on the property of one Jonathan Hersey, to which they invited everybody who was anybody connected with the family. This is a rather ironic ending to Stephen's story, because after all the arguments and money, all the penny-pinching, four cents for gingerbread and six cents for a football, when it came time for this graduation party, the Salisburys went absolutely berserk. One hundred guests were invited to dinner, and they were charged $1.50 a head. The list of party expenses, from China to wagon fares to the liquor, has survived. Are you ready? Twenty dozen lemons, ten pounds of almonds, one hundred cigars, twelve pounds of figs, pears, apples, plums, currants, melons, three dozen oranges, two pounds of candles, fruit baskets, eight of them, green bays, tablecloths, 
rental for horses, lumber, nails, and canvas for the tent, five pink cakes, five plum cakes, four one-quart moles of ice cream, and the liquor, three dozen bottles of Madeira, three dozen bottles of Porter, two dozen of Claret, we call that Cabernet today, one dozen bottles of Port, two gallons of brandy, two gallons of something called Jamaica Spirit, which I have no doubt is rum. Grand total for Stephen's graduation party, $765.53. That's the equivalent today, take a deep breath, of $11,657 in today's money. Now that's privilege. An $11,000 graduation party? For a kid who had no friends and didn't even get curtains in his room? Unbelievable. So, ashes to ashes. The Harvard class of 1817 turned out to be quite distinguished. George Bancroft, Stephen Salisbury's roommate, went on to be an accomplished historian and writer, U.S. ambassador to Great Britain, and eventually Secretary of the Navy. While he was Secretary of the Navy, he founded the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis, Maryland. Caleb Cushing, another member of this class, mentioned briefly in Stephen's letters, was Attorney General under President Franklin Pierce. Samuel Elliott was Mayor of Boston. Samuel J. May became a noted feminist and abolitionist, and was the uncle of Louisa May Alcott, who wrote Little Women. Robert Schuyler, also mentioned in Stephen's letters, who was a nephew by marriage of Alexander Hamilton, became a railroad tycoon and a notorious Wall Street thief and embezzler, the Bernie Madoff of his day. Stephen himself became a successful businessman and property owner in Worcester, Massachusetts, the president of a small railroad and the Worcester Polytechnic Institute, and prominent member of the American Antiquarian Society, in whose archives his old Harvard letters reside. He died in 1884. Aaron White became a schoolteacher, then a lawyer, then a banker, and eventually something of a revolutionary. He was the private secretary and chief advisor to a man named Thomas Wilson Dorr, who tried in 1842 to overthrow the state government of Rhode Island and led a kind of mini-revolution that's come to be known as the Dorr Rebellion. I wish I could do an episode on the Dorr Rebellion because it's incredibly fascinating. I can't because it's 1840s, not 18-teens, but suffice it to say Aaron White, with his melancholy disposition and abnormally long legs, was right there in the thick of it. He died in 1886. His epitaph, which probably refers to the Dorr Rebellion, reads, Here, driven into exile, while defending the rights of man, I found hospitality and love, a home, and a sepulchre. I want to thank the Massachusetts Historical Society who gave me specific permission to quote from the unpublished diaries of Aaron White. I'll put some links and some other information on the webpage for this show. If you like this podcast, please share it, tell somebody about it, mention it on your social media, your Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, whatever you do. Leaving a star rating and a review on iTunes is especially helpful because it will help other history buffs like you find this podcast. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash seanmunger. In addition to my Patreon account, you can find me on Twitter at seanmunger. There's an underscore there. And my website, seanmunger.com. My historical sources for this episode include Three Centuries of Harvard, 1636 to 1936 by Samuel Eliot Morrison, 1936. Life at Harvard a Century Ago as illustrated by the letters and papers of Stephen Salisbury 
edited by Benjamin Thomas Hill, Davis Press, 1910, and The Aaron White Diaries, Massachusetts Historical Society. Music Credits The main theme of this podcast is titled String Impromptu No. 1 by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.